I get to work with some pretty amazing staff. It's just phenomenal that God would bring people of the talent of Michael and Darla and Debbie and Katie and Jean and Gary into a setting like this. It's just, you know, he's got something in store for us, don't you? Remarkable. Um, if you're new to New Hope, you wouldn't know this, but we've been studying the book of Revelation for uh, about 32 weeks, and we're going to jump back into it again next Sunday. Today is the last in our uh, teaching on pushing the envelope. In the first week, we looked at how Jesus was pushing the envelope by healing a man blind from birth. And last week, we looked at how he cleansed the temple, how he cleaned out the house of God. And this week, we're going to be looking at Jesus' activity in Jerusalem with this woman who was caught in adultery. So if you have your Bibles and you want to open them up to John chapter 8, you'll be where I'm at. We're going to uh, be looking at this bold behavior again of Jesus. If you look up on the screen, you're going to see a... uh, an American interpretation of a Greek word for boldness and the definition that's associated with it. So look with me at the word boldness and the definition for how it's translated over into our language. The trait of being willing to undertake things that involve risk or danger, the quality of standing out distinctly. As you've discovered in the last two weeks, Jesus had no hesitation about modeling for us the need to stand out distinctly when we're modeling the things of the kingdom. He took great risk in pushing the envelope and became really, really bold on our behalf. We're going to see that again this morning. What we've learned over the last couple weeks is that it's our responsibility to put forth the effort. I can control the effort. I cannot control the outcome. God controls the outcome. The outcome is his responsibility. My responsibility to bring my A game, to bring the best I can to present my effort. God's going to pick up the other side and say, I'm controlling the outcome. That's why 2 Corinthians says he causes all things to work together for good. He's weaving it together. We bring the effort, he brings the outcome. So where we're at this morning, Jesus is in the vicinity of Jerusalem He's been spending the night out on the hillside, sleeping out on the mountains, literally, the Mount of Olives. And the Feast of the Tabernacles, a big celebration in their area, has just ended. So this Feast of the Tabernacles has discontinued, and Jesus decides to stay around in town. And he takes the opportunity to teach while he's in the temple courtyard. Last week, you learned a little bit about the complex of the temple, how big it is. And Jesus is now inside the temple, and he's teaching in this particular setting that we're stepping into. So look with me at John chapter 8 and verse 1. You'll also see it up on the screen. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. So during this feast, word had spread very quickly, Jesus is in town. And all the people, that's what the text says, it says all the people, this huge metropolis of Jerusalem, are cramming into the temple courtyard to hear Jesus teach. So this is a really large, large setting. So he's crossed the Kidron Valley, spent the night out on the mountainside, crossed the Kidron Valley in the morning, early in the morning, the text says, and he walks into the gates of the temple and he takes a seat. And what's important about that? Sitting is the position that rabbis taught from. Rabbis would take a seat, and they wouldn't just teach a half hour. 
They might teach an hour, hour and a half, two hours. People would come and go during the teaching. They might walk in, listen to part of it, and go on about their business and move on. But Jesus obviously has attracted a very, very large crowd. And in typical rabbinical style, he takes a seat, and the text says that all the people were coming because his teaching was so powerful. And you never knew what you were going to hear when you're listening to Jesus, let alone what you're going to see. I don't think they expected to see what we're about to see. Now, this is such a large crowd that even Luke wrote about it. Look with me up on the screen. Luke 21, 37. Every day he was teaching in the temple, and at night he would go out and spend the night on the Mount of Olives, as it was called. And all the people would get up early in the morning to listen to him in the temple. So if you have any reservations about coming to the 915 service, you know, you want to be Christ-like, you could do that. There it is in the text. You could come to the earlier service. But let that settle in for a second. Jesus is out sleeping under the shadow of the trees. The master of the universe doesn't even have a house to sleep in. The creator of everything And I tell you, this speaks directly to my heart because I need my hot showers, okay? I need my things, I think. But yet, the master of the universe is willing to go out and sleep on the mountainside. He has no place to sleep. Some nights he spent with Lazarus in Lazarus' house in Bethany where Mary and Martha were at occasionally. But we see here this astonishing humbling attribute. So when the text says in Philippians that he emptied himself, he really became humble. Look with me on the screen at Philippians 2.5. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. No wonder when that young guy came to Jesus and said, Jesus, Jesus, I want to be one of your followers too. And Jesus responds to him in Matthew 8.20, I'll tell you the truth, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to even lay his head. That's humbling. And it causes me to recalculate how much do I really need. So Jesus here in this setting that we're looking at is teaching in the temple courtyard. He's teaching in the court of women, according to John 8.20. And this setting is where the temple treasury was at. So in this area, remember you learned last week, the court of the Gentiles where all the commoners could gather. But if you were Jewish, you could go inside the courtyard and you could go into the court of women. And that's where we find Jesus teaching the court of women where just Jewish people could come. So he's teaching Jewish men and Jewish women in large numbers. And suddenly, he's interrupted by the scribes and the Pharisees. Let's watch this text unfold. Verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Can I just say right here how humiliating that these guys are this crass as though she is bait on the end of a hook 
that they're dangling out there trying to snag Jesus. Zero concern for her emotions. Not looking at her as a woman and made her stand in the middle of this massive group of people just to shame her and pushed her in the middle of the crowd and then turned to Jesus and began talking to him, probably forcing her to face Jesus, I'm sure with great shame. Know this about the scribes and the Pharisees that are mentioned here in the text. Scribes, these individuals, were responsible for taking the Old Testament, the historical documents, and copying it down word for word so there would be multiple copies of the Old Testament. And they were very serious about their work. As a matter of fact, if they got, and we're talking pen and ink here, if they got to the end of a sentence and misplaced a comma, they crumbled up the paper and threw it away and started all over again. No computers doing delete buttons. This is a very tedious process, and these guys knew the Word of God. They were sometimes referred to in Scripture as lawyers because they understood the law so well. Usually, they were of the sect known as Pharisees. So you have scribes and Pharisees who are sometimes one and the same, and we see here that there's both groups. The Pharisees are recognized because they are very, very strict about their adherence to the Mosaic law. You didn't get away with violating it in any sense, and there's about 6,000 of them alive at this period of time. Later, did you know that some of the Pharisees came to be believers in Jesus Christ? It's absolutely amazing. Look at Acts 15 later today when you get a chance. You'll see that some of the Pharisees showed up for a Bible study when the church was going. The church is up and running, and the guys are having their Bible study. The disciples are there. They're talking about things of the church, and in come some of the Pharisees. I can just see Peter turning and going, hey, aren't you the guys that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Please don't mention it, you know. These guys, obviously, at this point in time, do not believe that Jesus is who he said he is. And so they're trying to set him up. They're anxious to trick Jesus to get him to say something or do something that they can bring an accusation against, against him. Now, the accusation against this woman, we're going to assume is true. There's no reason to doubt it. They've seized her in the act. She's caught while committing the sin. But have you ever looked at this text and said, where's the man? you got the woman here. Is this a setup job or what? Now, know this about the Sanhedrin. These are the judges, the guys whom the Pharisees belong to. They're not known for getting up early in the morning, okay? So that they're here early in the morning bringing this charge is a remarkable thing. And they're bringing this charge against this woman without the man there. Obviously, I can't prove it, but it looks like a setup job. The law required that both guilty parties would be stoned according to Old Testament law, that they would be executed. And so the scribes and the Pharisees are handling this in a brutal method. They barge into the crowd, they interrupt Jesus in the midst of his teaching and shove this woman right into the middle and bring this accusation. Because they had no charge against Jesus, they're trying to manufacture a charge. So let's look at the text, verse 5. Now in the law, Moses, and this is the scribe speaking, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. So the deception is really clear at this point. 
It's obvious what they're trying to do. They want Jesus to contradict the law of Moses, to choose this one, to choose Moses' law and say, you know, we're going to have to stone her, means he's going against Roman law because people other than Romans could not carry out capital executions. To choose mercy and set her free meant that he was going against Mosaic law. And then they could turn the people against him. So what they're trying to do is put him in this dilemma causing him to have to make a decision in which he cannot win. And they think they have him trapped. So if they succeed, they're going to turn the people against Jesus. So they're reminding Jesus what the law said. Look at that. In the law, Moses, can you imagine telling God what he wrote down? That's what, they're forgetting who wrote this thing. They're trying to pin down Jesus. Now remember, they tried to pin him against Caesar. They said, who should we pay taxes to? And Jesus said, render of Caesar the things that are Caesar. They never saw that one coming. So now they're trying to trap him again. Now ask yourself this question, if justice is what they seek, why bring him, her to Jesus at all? If that's what they want is justice, they could have taken her to their own court system. They could have put her before the Sanhedrin and tried her. They obviously have an accusal of an open and shut case. They don't need Jesus, so there's something much bigger going on here. They're testing him so that they will have grounds for accusing him. I was doing some research and I came across a quote by a man by the name of John Darby. John is a pastor who lived a century ago at least and a great pastor, prolific writer. I want you to see his quote of the observation he made about human nature. Look with me up on the screen. It comforts and quiets the depraved heart of man if he can only find a person worse than himself. He thinks the greater sin of another excuses himself, and while accusing and vehemently blaming another, he forgets his own evil. He thus rejoices in iniquity. Wow, he nailed that. You're looking at a description of what we call the Pharisaical, the Pharisee behavior of the heart. So busy looking for the wrong in others, we forget about the wrong in ourselves. Now, the Greek is really emphatic here because this is what it says. When they say, what do you say? It means, you, what do you say? In a challenging term. Trying to get Jesus and bait him into this conversation. Now, understand, from a legal standpoint, they are correct. She absolutely, under Old Testament law, is in danger of the death penalty because of the act that she carried out. So from a legal standpoint, they're right. Look with me on the screen. Leviticus 20.10. If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Now the scribes know this law. The Pharisees know this law. They write it all the time. Jesus knows this law. Stoning for adultery at this period of time in the first century was highly uncommon. As a matter of fact, because Rome controlled all of this province, Roman law ruled. So the Pharisees and the scribes, the Sadducees, the Zealots, all of them, they found it much easier just to write a letter of divorce. As a matter of fact, these guys were so prolific at it that they were actually divorcing their wives for burning toast. I kid you not. Husband comes home to burn dinner, he could put her out on the street. It was that aggressive on their part. They found it just so simple to write a letter of divorce. That's why Jesus went after them so hard. 
So this scene that you're looking at here is reaching a climax. This woman has been humiliated, and now she's terrified because they're using the word stoning. So she's feeling like, I'm on death row. Humiliated, terrified, and in the midst of it, the Pharisees are jubilant. They think, we got them. Can you imagine being that hard in your heart? I'm sure if I'm in the crowd at this point, the crowd is hushed. Can you imagine watching the teacher thinking, what is he going to do with this? How can he handle this situation? So in the midst of it, we notice from the text that Jesus gets off his stool and gets down on the ground and begins writing on the ground. I'm looking at this thinking, this is the first time I've seen the finger of God write anything since the Old Testament when he wrote the Ten Commandments. And we don't even get to know what he's writing. It doesn't tell us. It just says he begins to write on the ground. What did he write? Only speculation is that he's making a list of the sins of all the people that are standing around him. Who knows what they were reading, what they were looking at. Can you imagine him beginning to write down your own failures and shortcomings when you're the accuser? Whatever he wrote is lost to the sands of time. But there's something much deeper going on here. What they're asking him to decide is between justice and mercy. The justice of God and the mercy of God. How can the two coexist? God's is holy. His law is holy. We understand that from what the text says. But the law knows nothing of forgiveness. The law is written in stone and there's no bending. It knows nothing of forgiveness. Mercy understands forgiveness. Paul really understood this. So look at his definition on the screen. Romans 3.20 By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We know about sin through the law, but it doesn't forgive us. Galatians 2.16, the same thing. A man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So how does God forgive without violating his own law? How do the two coexist? The answer is through the grace of God expressed in Jesus. That's the only way you find it. His sacrificial death fully attained everything that God needed to see happen when he put to death sin through Christ. Paul wrote it much better than I can say it. Look with me on the screen, Romans 8, 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. So we see in Jesus, justice and mercy harmonize together perfectly. So God can be both the just and the justifier. Look on the screen one more time, Romans 3.26. God can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now Jesus is the master of the moment. Every time you read about one of these incidences unfolding, it's amazing to watch him, and he just lets it go silent. No response. Now they have to persist in asking him the question because he gives no response. He continues to doodle in the sand. And I believe they think, under puzzlement, 
we got him. What's he going to do now? How could he possibly get out of this one? Look at his response in verse 7. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Brilliant. Can you say brilliant with a capital B? Oh my goodness. You're looking at the wisdom of God. No one saw this coming. No one had ever experienced this ever in history, especially in Judaic history under the Mosaic law. When someone's guilty of a crime, they're punished. There's no forgiveness. Jesus just pushed the envelope on both sides of the wall, and he's raising the bar so that they understand the law should be carried out. If you're guilty of offending the law of God, there is a penalty, but by those who had no sin. And we know there's only one who had no sin. So these individuals understand that what they're up against is trying to figure out the wisdom of God now. How do they counteract that? I will tell you, church, this particular passage here is used by many people to excuse sinful behavior. Many people look around and say, well, we're free from blame because look at everybody else. They're all doing it. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying that this excuses sin. Literally, he's saying it condemns those who are guilty even though they haven't been caught. He knows who the individuals are. And so he puts it right back in their face. And the reply, church, I'm here to tell you, this is profound. When he uses the word first stone, that has a very significant meaning to these individuals because it's rooted in the Old Testament law. In Deuteronomy 17.20, the first stone was a specific word set that had to be used together when accusing someone. Let me take you to the text, Deuteronomy 17.7. I'm just going to read it to you real quick. Deuteronomy 17.7 says this specifically. The hand of the witness shall be first against him to put him to death and afterward the hand of all the people. Meaning, the person who seized the woman, the group of Pharisees who dragged her into the court, have to be the ones to cast the first stone. That's what he meant when he said the first stone. So Jesus is going beyond the typical interpretation of the law and raising the bar and saying, okay, you want to carry out the law? Examine your own heart. Where are you in relationship to God? It is fascinating. And each accuser now has to declare, I'm sin-free or I'm a sinner. See, Jesus is not saying he's, you have to be perfect to carry out God's law. What he's saying is, you guys don't have the moral high ground on this issue. You have no authority to carry this out. So he's not minimizing her guilt, nor is he minimizing the law. He's saying they're both there. But what he did is he cut the ground out from underneath the accusers and they had nothing to stand on. Verse 9, when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Awkward. <laughs> you want a definition for awkward? Look up this moment, okay? Wow. Anybody here consider themselves in the category of the older ones? My hand's up first, okay? 
Older ones meaning you understand your life history is full of mistakes, sinful behavior, and the older ones are the first one to realize it, and they're checking out. And the younger guys are looking around thinking, well, we're not going to be left here alone either. So I picture in my mind they're slithering out like snakes. Literally, the text says that one by one, one at a time is what it means. They left after they realized how significant their sin was. That they walked out, folks, tells us something really significant. They understood what we already know. Every one of us has been born to sin. Every one of us is born into a sinful world. There is only one who has never sinned, the man Christ Jesus. It's what we just sang about. Jesus, name above all names, blessed Redeemer, Messiah, the one whom God made to be sin for us. That's what 2 Corinthians says. Look on the screen. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So the accusers are convicted by their own conscience. They're immediately aware. What else could they say? They had no grounds left. Jesus cut it right out from under them. You know, when I'm reading this, I'm thinking of what we're stepping back into with the book of Revelation next week. And we're getting to the judgment seat of Christ. God instills Jesus as judge of all the earth. And we hear about this great judgment seat of Christ when we look at Scripture. You're going to learn about it in Revelation. But what happens at the judgment seat? Everyone who's ever existed becomes before Jesus. And Scripture says, we are left with nothing to say. These guys are left with nothing. They've confronted the king of the universe. And they got nothing. No response whatsoever. They know. So it begins with the older ones. Now with the departure of the legalist who are on their way out because they've tried to make the law work and it didn't work, he now turns his attention to the woman. Before we look at her very closely, I want you to see a Greek definition, a, an American definition of the Greek word for mercy. It really puts it in context well. Look on the screen at the word mercy. Compassion that forbears punishing even when justice demands it. Now look at this caveat. With no way to protect oneself against. Meaning, you have no defense you're totally at the mercy of the judge. You can't get out of the situation, so you're more dependent upon him just being kind to you. This is the one who has the power to take away your life. In that context, we're using this word mercy. So picture this. Jesus is left alone with this woman in the courtyard. Huge temple complex. And it's just face-to-face, sinner Redeemer. This is really cool. This is magnificent grace. Look at verse 10. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? I picture this. He's writing on the ground and he gets up, looking around. Where are they? as though he didn't know. Now you know if she's been hanging her head in shame to this point. They're not here, Lord. This 
approach that he takes with her is extremely respectful. This word woman in Greek is the same phrase he used for his own mother. He's being very polite to this woman and being very gracious to her. Looking around, his attitude is completely respectful. Woman, where's your accusers? Did no one condemn you? The last definition I'm going to give you today, and I apologize for using three of them, but I want you to get this one down because it applies to you personally. Greek word, katakrino. Katakrino is a compound word, and it has a very specific definition. It's related to the word condemn or condemnation. So look at the definition. To judge against, to sentence, damn. Kata meaning denotes opposition or intensity, Crino, to distinguish, decide mentally or judicially by implication to punish, avenge, damn, determine, judge. Woman, did no one katakrino you? Woman, is no one going to damn you? No one, Lord. There's no one here. Do you think that her heart is really teachable at this point? I mean, she stepped from death row into life. The one who had the power over her is gone. They've slithered away. I'd say she's got a really, really teachable heart at this moment. And he's talking to her politely. No one's done that. So think, her heart is very teachable. Look at the verse, verse 11. She said, no one, Lord, And Jesus said, I do not katakrino you either. Go from now on, sin no more. Wow. Nobody's done this up to this point. I know it's not news to us because we've read this story over and over again if you grew up in church. But this hasn't happened. This has not been an age of forgiveness. This has been an age of punishment. So Jesus pushes this envelope For this woman, she's guilty, no doubt about it. And Jesus is not katakrino her. No condemnation. Only a sinless judge can render the verdict in this situation. So the only one who could carry out her punishment chooses not to. For each of us who name the name of Jesus Christ There is therefore now no katakrino for you. No condemnation. That's what happened when Jesus wipes away our sins. He takes away all the guilt of the past. No condemnation. I am convinced that the greatest miracle of God is not the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He proved that he could do that with others. It is not the healing of the blind man. It is not the healing of the lame There's amazing miracles. The greatest miracle is that the God of justice and righteousness chooses not to condemn us. The katakrino is removed. That's what the Scriptures say. Romans 8.1, look on the screen. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So who has the power to withdraw condemnation? Only the one who's righteous. And that's what he chooses to do. He has removed the condemnation from you. It is amazing. So he says to her, from now on, go and sin no more. Now notice, he didn't say, go and sin as little as possible, please. 
new, go and sin no more. He raises the bar really high. No more means no more. Don't keep going for that lifestyle. Turn from it. So he sets the highest bar he can in front of her because Jesus is God. And so he establishes, here's what righteousness looks like. Go, but sin no more. Every time an individual encounters Jesus Christ, it requires life transformation. Best way I can close this teaching out for you is with an illustration I just learned about in the last couple weeks. Chicago Bears took on training camp in the last uh, spring of this year, 2010, and in the midst of training camp, Lovey Smith, the head coach for the Chicago Bears, decided that with the 70 guys that he's got on the team who want to be on the team, he knew that before season started, he had to cut it down to 53 guys. So he's got to get rid of 17 players. Now, 17 of the 70 guys that are there are rookies. And every single rookie knew that his number could be up very easily. So, Coach Lovey Smith talks to his, you can go on their website and look at this, this video is amazing. He's talking to his team in the beginning of the season, in the spring training, and he says to the guys who are in training camp, rookies especially, I want you to understand, what you're going to have to do is work so hard and convince us to put you onto the team. As a matter of fact, what you need to do is take the decision out of our hands. You need to be so good at your job that, As the coaches, you've removed the choice from us. We no longer have to make the decision because you're a standout player. I will tell you the truth. Most world religions and most people in the world believe that's what you have to do to get into heaven. That you have to work so hard, you have to convince the coach you're going to be on the team. You've got to let me in heaven because I've done this and this and this. That's not what the text says. It says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So no matter your past, no matter what you have committed, Jesus says, I'll wipe it all away if you place your trust in me. So it's a reverse of what the world thinks. The world thinks like Coach Lovey Smith, but that's not it. It's only through the grace and mercy of God the Father and the work of Jesus Christ the Son. He became sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Pretty cool, huh? Let's pray. Father, I stand before you in these, these hearts that are sitting here in the pews and individuals who have come in here for a variety of reasons this morning, every one of us in need of the redemption that only comes through Jesus Christ. And some of us have already arrived at that conclusion and we know that we have no eternity with you apart from Jesus. And so our hearts are filled with gratitude. But others, Father, are trying to decide and trying to figure this out. So I pray for them right now. I just lift them up before you asking that you would be at work in their heart. Help them to come to an understanding of what you did and that there is redemption by no other name. Father, as we take on this week, I ask that you would cause us to remember the truths of this text. First of all, God, I ask sincerely that you help us not to be like the Pharisees. The great temptation to point fingers at others when we're just filled with sin ourselves. But God, also to be like the woman 
who's aware of how close she came to condemnation and that it was through your work that you let it go by. So Father, I thank you first of all for the teaching, for the truth, for the things that we were able to sing about and learn about this morning. And I thank you for what lays ahead of us in this week that most of us don't know about and you're going to be at work in it anyways. So God, we give it all over to you, asking for your glory in everything. And it's through Jesus Christ's name we proclaim this. Amen.